I'm Nuria martinez Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining me as I discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, while Governor Kevin Stitt takes a hands-off approach to the latest COVID-19 surge, the Oklahoman reports out of a hospital intensive care unit, where medical staff say the demand for an ICU bed exceeds the staffing and space to accommodate every patient. This is a dire situation, and the rapid increase in patients due to COVID-19 is stressing resources for healthcare across the state. Capitol reporter Carmen Foreman and health reporter Dana Branham are with me in the studio today. Thank you both for being here. Dana, let's start with you because you went to the intensive care unit at SSM St. Anthony's Hospital this week. Uh, What was it like going in there? Yeah, um, it's kind of hard to know what to expect uh, before you before you head in. uh, But I would say it was definitely a sobering experience. Um, I was there with a photographer for about a half hour and we were talking with um, a charge nurse who works in the ICU um, and just kind of we could peek into patient rooms and kind of just take a look around um, to get our bearings. Um, So it was definitely like a busy day there yesterday for them. They had uh, 18 people in the ICU, 18 COVID patients in the ICU. um, And so they have a maximum of 33 beds. Uh, And so if 18 our COVID patients, that leaves 15 for other things. And obviously that COVID number can flex, but when you have that many COVID patients, it leaves fewer beds for um, people who, who have other um, ICU needs. What are hospital systems saying about the latest COVID surge? Are they at a breaking point right now? Definitely. Um, they are really at their limits of capacity. Um, they have been saying for a couple weeks now that they're really struggling. Something that we've heard from a lot of them is that their ERs are super full. If you get in a car accident, have a heart attack, need an emergency surgery, or yes, even if you have a stroke, there's a chance you might not be able to get the time-sensitive care you need. These are all medical emergencies where every minute is crucial. And when our hospitals are filled to capacity, we're just not able to provide the timely care that we normally offer. Um, so they are maxed out as far as capacity. They're, they've got dozens of requests from smaller hospitals to transfer people in that they're not even able to meet those requests. Um, and they're doing all of this with less staff and just the exhaustion of going on, what, 18 months of doing this. So they are definitely at a breaking point. Meanwhile, Carmen, Governor Stitt doesn't seem to be as vocal or visible as he was during the last big wave of the pandemic. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Um, you know, if if we remember anything probably from the first wave of the pandemic, it, it was that Governor Stitt was out early and he was very vocal about, you know, like, we don't know what this is, but we're keeping tabs on it. I want to stress that the state is working with our federal, state, and local partners in order to respond to any confirmed cases appropriately and swiftly and ensure information and resources are available for all Oklahomans. And he had press conferences, and you know, when things got really bad, maybe twice a month, sometimes multiple ones a week, just to talk about the COVID situation. As you are aware, our cases of COVID-19 continue to go up here in Oklahoma and they're continuing to go up all across the country. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 in the state of Oklahoma has gone up 19% just in the last week. 
this time around, it's been a little different. Um, and, you know, I know that the governor is a busy man and has a lot of topics on his plate, but we haven't seen him do a COVID press conference since um, late March, which was when he got his COVID vaccine on camera. And a couple weeks before then, he kind of did a press conference that was like looking back on the past year of COVID. It was almost like a, a victory lap of him describing how well he had handled it. For most of us, this has been the longest year of our life but we've weathered the storm together. So we haven't really heard, had a press conference since then. And, you know, granted, press conferences aren't the only way the governor talks to the public. Um, Last week, he did a couple TV interviews to kind of say, you know, we're monitoring the situation. I'm getting with the health department constantly. And we're talking to hospitals to say, uh, you know, if they need anything, they can come to us, ask for it. We can help them in any way we can. So he's keeping abreast of the situation, but he's not really out in front of everybody talking about COVID, especially as things are getting worse in Oklahoma. Right. And this is a question for both Carmen and Dana. Some health experts have urged the governor to implement a state of emergency. Why did they say that was necessary? And what was the governor's response to that? Sure. So I can go with kind of why they were calling for that. Um, So a state of emergency would um, let let the state do several different things. But um, one of them would be that schools would be able to require masks for students. And I think that has been a huge concern of health experts is that um, school districts can't can't do that. And that's and we're in the middle of this surge and sending kids back into the classroom. So that's one thing. But the other part of this is that Um, Some health leaders were saying that a state of emergency would allow them some flexibility that they had um, in kind of previous surges of the pandemic where they can convert rooms, they can they can kind of cut through some red tape and um, and respond to the surge whatever way they can without having to kind of jump through some bureaucratic obstacles. Um, And so I know that the state health department has put in some emergency rules that are kind of speaking to that part of it. Um, And and Carmen, you you might have thoughts more on on what the governor thinks on that. So I don't know that the governor will ever declare a state of emergency again due to COVID. And uh, he hasn't exactly said why. He just says that he doesn't feel that it's necessary at this point. I don't know if there is a point whether hospitalizations get so out of control or COVID cases get so out of control that he would do it. But I feel like a big reason why he hasn't declared a state of emergency is that law that would allow school districts to implement mask mandates. Um, And he's basically said, you know, he wants parents to have the option to decide whether their kids, you know, get vaccinated or wear a mask to school. And he's pretty much doubled and tripled down on that. And he signed this law. So pretty sure he stands by it. Um, Going back to the emergency rules, some of what was um, what the emergency declaration was needed for is um, is no longer necessary because uh, state agencies were able to do it through the emergency rulemaking process, which is tedious and kind of boring. So I won't go super into that. But the health department has granted hospitals flexibility through the um, emergency rulemaking process. And then some of the state medical licensure boards are now um, fast tracking medical licenses, which we saw early on in the pandemic. Governor Stitt um, was basically like, well, we need to get as many healthcare professionals into our 
hospitals as possible. So instead of, you know, making you take this test and fill out all this paperwork and um, to get licensed in a process that may take weeks and then pay an expensive fee, um, he basically said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do like 48 hours. If you're in good standing and you pass a background check, boom, you can go work in a hospital. And so they've done that again. And um, those are two of the big things that I can think of that Stitt's previous emergency declaration allowed. So it's hard to say if another emergency declaration is necessary. Um, But I know a lot of people, some parents want their kids and their school districts to mandate masks. So Right. So it sounds like on the medical side of things in terms of giving extra flexibility to healthcare providers it sounds like that's kind of already taken care of so what really is left is this school mask issue which the governor has said he he is against mask mandates um and the I know it's been confusing for some people seeing some school districts implement a version of a mass mandate but those still have an opt-out option and the governor has been supportive of that uh so is it a true mandate? You know, when when people can still get out of it, probably not. Um, so it it just seems like the the school mask issue is is what's really left here. Um, and Carmen, does this seem to be an intentional strategy for Governor Stitt to say as little about COVID nineteen as possible? It's hard to say. I mean, there are definitely times where it feels like wow, how has the governor not said anything about this yet? Um, But I've talked to folks, you know, Democrats mostly will say that um, Stitt is doing this on purpose because next year he's up for re-election. There are rumors and whispers, none of which have been confirmed, that Stitt may be uh, eyeing higher office one day. Um, he himself has said he really enjoys being governor and plans to stick around uh, so long he's, as he's reelected. So it kind of gets into some of the politics of it. Um, I thought it was really interesting in your story how you compared what Stitt was saying and doing to other Republican governors around the country. Um, how has how his approach differed from other GOP governors? So I, I think you'll see a lot more GOP governors are out there saying things. Right. Even if you're the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who um, has, you know, very conservative, he is out there, you know, touting monoclonal antibodies, Regeneron treatments. Um, He was sort of touting, uh, you know, vaccines for a while. He's still sort of doing that. He's out talking to the public, even if some of the public doesn't want to hear what he has to say. Some people have also looked to Arkansas Governor Aza Hutchinson as like an example of, and I say this as what some people want Stitt to do. Um, Aza Hutchinson, he went on a tour of the state to tout vaccines and sort of fight vaccine misinformation. Um, He has also publicly said that although he signed a law similar to Oklahoma's law that prevents school mask mandates. He has since gone back on that since the Delta variant has um, spread and said that he regrets signing that law and that he called a special session to try to get the legislature to reverse that law. Um, Now it's, you know, tied up in the court system just like ours is. So it's interesting. You also see a lot more GOP governors, not a lot more, but at least 
seven or eight of them backed um, vaccine incentives of some kind, you know, whether it was Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who was touting, you know, a vaccine lottery, similar programs in like West Virginia, Arkansas, things like that. And there are, you know, there's debate over whether those things actually work. But here in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt has basically said he does not support state-funded or state-run vaccine incentives. It seems as though he would be okay if, like, private entities offered incentives. It just kind of looks like Stitt isn't doing nearly as much as some other governors. But then you could also look at it on the flip side, like in Florida, where, um, you know, Governor DeSantis threatened school districts to basically strip them of funding if they implemented mask mandates. You don't see Governor Stitt doing that here. He has threatened, um, you know, Holbert Public Schools when they implemented a mask mandate. Um, He said that was a violation of state law. And he did say that, you know, I'm going to have my AG look at this and, you know, there will be repercussions. But he didn't, you know, go so far as to say, we're going to strip you of state funding. Right. It's curious when you, especially when you talk about the, um, the vaccine issue of what he, when you look at the verbiage of what he says, you've written that he has often shied away at times of actually promoting the vaccine, of actually saying, Oklahomans, you should get this. He's encouraged Oklahomans to talk about it with their doctor. But even fewer times has he said, Oklahomans get vaccinated. Now his his um, uh, head of the health department has said it. Some of his uh, communications officers have said it. But when it comes from the governor's mouth, that just we just haven't heard that as often. Is that right? Yeah, it's very like nitpicky. Um, and but no, he hasn't been super direct about telling Oklahomans to get vaccinated. And you know, I'm not saying that he's not supporting the vaccines or backing the vaccines obviously he got a j&j shot in a very public way he had a whole media conference with that i'm trying to lead by example and so that's why i'm doing it today we think all three of the vaccines are safe that's why i'm uh, stepping up exactly but you just don't hear him talking about it frequently or in a way that really sounds like he's 100% behind encouraging folks to get vaccinated. And Dana, let's revert back to to the COVID ICU unit that you were in um, just this week. You saw a lot of similarities to the previous COVID wave, but there are noticeable differences in the effect of the disease, in the patients coming in the door, in the staffing levels that hospitals are dealing with. What's unique about this latest wave? Yeah, that's a that's a lot of what we were asking about yesterday is is what's looking different in this surge um, versus previous ones. And the kind of things that all come back to you um, are they were letting me know that patients who are coming into the hospital are getting sicker quicker is how they were phrasing it. In my firsthand experience, they are taking fewer days to need critical care and fewer days to reach the need for bypass machines or ventilators and they are much younger. And that's that's really worrisome because there aren't those ICU beds available to get someone that help um, quickly. So they're, they're very much strained by that. Um, the other thing that they're noticing is that in previous waves, we were seeing um, the sickest patients were older people um, and people with some like chronic health issues or underlying health issues. 
And this time they're saying they're seeing people in their 20s, 30s, 40s that were otherwise healthy, um, but COVID has really made them sick. And so they're attributing that to the Delta variant, which we know is the variant that very quickly became the predominant um, variant spreading in our state. And so they're they're kind of tying what they're seeing to that variant. And I remember reading through your story, they also mentioned that staffing has gotten worse since the last time that cases and hospitalizations were this high. Did they talk about that at all? Yeah, um, that's been kind of like the under, like the the story that's sort of underneath the story for this, the the crisis and the capacity issues is that um, they are working with smaller teams than they were before. Um, And so the staffing shortages, um, one doctor I spoke to said it's, to him, it seems most pronounced in nurses and respiratory therapists. Um, And it's not exactly surprising when you're talking to these nurses who are absolutely exhausted, they're burned out. um, And I, I think feel a little sad, a little angry that they're back in this again. The feelings are a little different this time um, because knowing that there is a vaccine that can help prevent this sickness, um, there's a lot of frustration, um, a lot of sadness. We're doing all we can and we're just barely hanging on. A lot of us are working 50, 60 hours a week, switching from night shift to day shift, and it's not sustainable and we need people's help. Um, when we hear about staffing shortages, burnout, and people leaving the workforce is definitely part of that conversation. And what percentage of these ICU patients are unvaccinated? Um, so for at St. Anthony, they were telling us that for all of their COVID patients, um, so not just the ICU, although I think the numbers would likely look similar, um, it's about 90% are unvaccinated. So that tracks very closely with what we have at the state level. Um, the latest numbers from the state health department are for the last month, um, 92% of COVID hospitalizations all across the state are in unvaccinated people. And, and when you were talking to doctors and nurses in this COVID unit, what did they say just about what they're thinking and how they're doing? Yeah, they're really struggling. Um, the The charge nurse that we spent the most time with yesterday Um, She just seemed exhausted. Um, I think this is very mentally difficult to do this again. Um, I was asking her, like, how do you remain empathetic through all of this when there is a vaccine out there and you're treating so many unvaccinated patients? Um, And I was very impressed. I mean, she said, like, this is what I love to do. I I treat people and regardless of their choices. But she's very tired and she and her other nurses are are they said they're very open about the mental health issues that have come with this the anxiety the depression she said they go to therapy they talk to each other about this um, but it's still a ton of work they're pulling 50 60 hour work weeks they're switching from day to night shift night to day shift back and forth Um, they are just trying their best and she said they're barely hanging on All right. Well, Carmen and Dana, thanks so much for joining me today and for talking about what's um, going on as of late in the political scene and in our hospitals. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahomans subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.